This is the podcast of Theophilus Church. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com. So tonight we're going to continue on with our series on the Apostles' Creed. And uh, tonight we're going to, to talk about God as Father. The next two weeks, actually, are two topics. God is Father is tonight, and next week is Creator in Heaven and Earth. And we're going to get into some material that could be uh, a struggle or a stretch for some in our community. And just out in the front end of things, I want to say that my hope is that we are and we continue to grow to become a community of people that can press into challenging topics in a conversational and a respectful manner with one another. And so this is the open invitation that if conversations that we have around the Apostles' Creed or sermons or whatever is something that arouses something within you that is a tension point or a struggle, I just want to invite dialogue. I love people. I love you. I love to have dialogue and conversation And I just want to invite that. I hope that we can uh, grow into that as a community, that we are a community who talks and respects and hears and listens to one another and not a community that just is aroused and runs when something gets challenging or triggers us in a certain way. Tonight, we're talking about God as Father, which for some of us, depending on where we are landing on the spectrum of how we relate to our own fathers or experiences that we have um, as a father with the fathers who are above us, that this could be a topic that uh, is really, really challenging. In a conversation with my wife leading up to this sermon, uh, she expressed to me how this topic for her is a deeply challenging topic because of a a complicated relationship that she has with her father and how it creates a disconnect with her ability to relate to God in this way. And it, it is a struggle. Tonight, when we talk about God as father from the onset, Uh, I think it's helpful for us to revisit and to explore um, this world of of this idea of metaphor, right? Several weeks ago, um, I communicated. I'm just going to take this off right now because it's like distracting me here. Several weeks ago, uh, or like several months ago, actually, I, I gave a sermon where I talked about Uh, a friend of mine who was teaching at Reed and she she was a PhD in French linguistics and uh, her area of expertise was how was studying how the the direction that people read dictates how they relate to time do you remember this who is here when you okay for those who are not here I'll recap it briefly Basically, what her studies concluded was that in Western society, um, we read from left to right. And in a lot of other cultures, like Arab cultures in, in North Africa, where I lived for a period of time, they read from right to left. Well, in Western culture, um, imagine, let's use the metaphor of a train. Einstein used this idea of a train going into the future is how we relate to time. As Westerners, we are a people who are the people sitting on the train facing the front of the train. 
And we, we perceive time as something that we can look into, right? We, it's, it starts at this point and it goes into the future. And so consequently, as we are looking into time, we've developed habits and tendencies that almost make it like this ethical or moral responsibility that we have to take control of time. It's something that we can look into, that we can anticipate, that we can plan for, and maybe even that we can control. Whereas in Arab culture, um, they are the people on the train looking toward the back of the bus, right? Or the back of the train. We're on the train, not a bus, right? Um, And as they are moving forward into the future, they experience the future as it washes over them. So the future is something that we experience as it passes us by, not necessarily as we are looking into it. So as, why I want to uh, bring back this metaphor is because depending on where you are sitting on the train, it will dictate how you relate to time and how you relate to this idea of fatherhood. For me, I grew up with a very uh, present, responsible, Loving, caring father. I am so unbelievably grateful to have the dad that I did. So when I think of God as father, I immediately go and I attach my dad's image to this this character. And it's not a stretch for me to be at least initially aroused with positive, like a positive response. This is a, a positive picture that I have. Some of you in this room have the exact opposite. Maybe you were hurt. Maybe you were abused. And so when that word father comes up, it evokes something inside of you that is not pleasant to deal with. And so then making that association with God is supposed to fit this category, it becomes very troubling. In the world of theology and and, uh, in the world of of the church, when we experience things like this, the tendency then is to find space that is comfortable for us to navigate or to, to exist in. And so in Western culture, we are infatuated with choice. Think about your day. This will make sense in a second. I'll tie this together. Think about the normal rhythms of your day. When we wake up in the morning, let's just pretend we live in an apartment in downtown Portland. We wake up in the morning and we go downstairs and we get our coffee in the morning. And we say, I would like a coffee, please. And what does your barista respond with? Would you like eight, 16, or 24 ounces? Um, I'll take 16. Would you like it in a cup for here or to go? Um, I'll take it for here. Okay, would you like room? Sure. Uh, Would you like cream and sugar in that? No, I'll go ahead and doctor it up over there. Well, maybe I'll take some cream. Okay, we have oat milk, we have goat's milk, we have rice milk, we have soy milk. Or we have a cow in the back and you can go and you can just (laughs) squeeze a few drops and, right? Then we get our coffee and we sip on it, and then we discern, okay, we need to get 
to, we need to get to work. So we pull out our phone. What's the quickest way to work? Should I Uber? Should I ride my bike? Should I drive my car? Or should I take public transit, right? And we get on there and we figure out, okay, I'm going to drive my car to work. So we go to work. I'm hungry and I should meet with my colleague for lunch. So we call up the colleague and we say, let's go to lunch. Okay, where do you want to go? In my area, there is Thai food, there's Mexican food, there's Korean food. Oh, and there's a really good new Chinese restaurant. What do you want to try? Right? We go to our Chinese restaurant and then you get my point, right? This is kind of the world that we live in. The air that we breathe is a, is a, a, a culture and a world where we can have our space, our meals, our drinks, whatever we want, how we want it, when we want it. Are we going to go out? Do we want to drink? Do we not want to drink? That will dictate how we get there and how we get home. And we have all of this accessible to us at our fingertips. And we are fools to think that how we live are the normal rhythms of our lives and our existence doesn't interpret into how we relate to God and our creator. So when we encounter things like this, God is Father, it's like, well... A natural tendency, almost like a knee-jerk reaction, because it's just embedded in the air that we breathe and the way that we exist, is, do I like how that makes me feel? Do I not like how it makes me feel? It's almost like tomatoes in our little salad. It's like, do I like how that tastes or not? If I don't, I'll just put it out here and I'll replace it with something that I do until I get the perfect salad. And then I'll eat that salad. I was in Croatia with some, some friends a couple years ago, and somebody on our trip absolutely hated shellfish, hated it. And we were on the sea in Croatia. And we get to this place to eat, and she asks the person, what is the best Croatian meal that you have? And they're like, oh, a linguine with shellfish, like all over it, right? And she looks at this guy and says, okay, I'll have that. They bring the shellfish to her, and she's sitting there, and she's eating it. And as she's eating this, this food, she wells up, like her, her eyes just well up with tears, and she just begins to sob over her food. She's sobbing over her food, because she hates it. It is so disgusting to her. Everybody else at the table is saying, why are you torturing yourself? What are you doing? Get something that you like. And she says, she looks at the table and she goes, no, I want to experience what these people experience. I want to know if I can handle this in a different context. I want to know what it is about this thing that, that is so desirable in this culture. And so I'm going to press through and I'm going to experience this. Now, at the end of the day, it didn't taste good. She's probably not going to order it again. And yet the willingness or the desire to put yourself in a position to experience something that you know is going to not be the most pleasant thing 
to experience does something inside of you that is, it, it births something inside that is virtuous, actually, that um, we can learn from and we can grow from. So today, I just want to acknowledge from the get-go that, that a topics like this, acknowledging God as Father, we believe God as Father evokes all kinds of emotions. And for some, you're like my friend, sitting at that table, taking this bite of this pasta, and uh, it's, it's revolting, and it's so hard to swallow. For those of us who are sitting at the table that can't relate, we love shellfish, I want to give a word of caution to say, hey, let's respect this space of somebody who is trying to digest something that is deeply painful for them to to digest, to respect that space, and to patiently navigate that space alongside them and journey with them through that process instead of kicking them in the shins and leaving them behind. Okay? That is a process that we need to get better at as a body of Christ, moving together alongside people on different stages in the journey. Now let's begin to explore what this idea of God as Father really evokes and means to the early church and how it can be packed with meaning for us today. From the get-go... It is very important to to understand that when we talk about God as Father, we are not talking about gender. We are not talking about God as gender. And I am not just saying this because it is a point of contention in our in our contemporary context. Adam Hamilton, who uh, is a pastor theologian is really helpful in pointing out a sermon preached by uh, an earlier church father, Gregory of Nazianzus, from Constantinople in the 3rd century. I want to to read to you uh, something from Gregory of Nazianzus. He says, Towards the end of the 4th century, in a sermon preached in Constantinople, Gregory of Nazianzus explained that the words father and son should be used with having, without having any bodily ideas in our minds. Otherwise, we would be back in paganism, imagining a God who physically procreated in order to bring forth a son. We use the words father and son, Gregory says, in a more elevated sense. We accept the realities without being put off by the names. Ordinary family connotations cannot be applied to God, much less connotations of gender. Do you take it, Gregory asks his congregation, that our God is a male because of the masculine nouns God and Father? Is the Godhead a female because in the Greek the word is feminine? Such crude biological thinking would be pagan, not Christian. This is a a 4th century early church father, not a 21st century uh, theologian, imploring his congregation to say, when we think of these terms, we need, to, we need to not think that we're talking about gender, but we need to press into what these terms father actually means or meant to the early Romans when the time the creed was, was written and what they should evoke within us uh, today. 
Huso Gonzalez is a, he's a scholar uh, from Yale. He's Cuban-American. He's one of my favorite historians. And he points out um, that when this was written, when the creed was written in the uh, second century, so about 150 AD, Roman culture was in its, it was in its prime. And in standard Roman culture, you had a thing called the paterfamilia. The paterfamilia was the master of the home. It was the father of the home. It was always male, and it was always the father figure of that home, the oldest male in that, in that home. The paterfamilia had complete and utter sovereignty over his space. Not only was his biological children his property, but his wife was, was property. He often had slaves. And there was even free people that were caught up under the authority of the paterfamilia because they had a debt or a service that they owed to him. It actually wasn't uncommon in Roman culture that somebody, a child, most commonly women, who were not wanted by their families because they were a liability, not an asset to the family inheritance, would be left outside to die. And people, the church would come oftentimes and take them in and raise them as their own. But other people would see these as a financial asset. They would take these children, they would raise them until they were of age, and then they would sell them off into slavery. So a lot of slaves in old Roman time were literally fatherless, abandoned children living under the lordship and the authority of the paterfamilia who would then enslave them for the rest of their lives. Now, if you were a child, to be released under your father's authority, he had to release you. There had to be a formal release. Otherwise, until that point, you were permanently under the lordship of this father. So, when the early church would, upon entering the waters of baptism, there's a reason why it took so long for them to utter these words and these confessions. When they would be entering into the waters of baptism, And after considering the consequences of this faith profession that they were going to make for the very first time, would utter the words, God as Father. I believe in God, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. The subversive undertones that that would take. Imagine you are a slave who was abandoned by your father and were found yourself enslaved and subservient to another father who you are implored to call father and Lord. And upon the waters of baptism, you stand up and you say, that's not my dad. That is not my father. I anchor myself in another father who tells another story that is not one of captivity and slavery, but it is another story altogether. That's a powerful profession 
that could cost you your life. And Houston Gonzalez says it is precisely one of the reasons why it took months and months for people to make this profession of faith. Consider the cost of what this will say to you, what this could cost you. Consider what you are subverting, what you are overriding, the rules and the systems of this world that you are subverting by saying, he is my father, that is not my father. It's powerful. It's loaded with a punch. It's a confession with a punch. So what is this idea? How do we get a good perspective on what the Father is and how we are to relate to the Father? You noticed when we, during the reading of Scripture that um, we read the prodigal son. And what was it, like two months ago, I preached on the prodigal son. And so those of you who were here, you're like, this dude's running out of material. And that's like only partially true. Um, um, When we talked about the prodigal son, and pretty much every time we talk about the prodigal son, it's insert who are you, right? Are you the older son or are you the younger son? That's how we engage with that parable. And I said at the end of my sermon, um, which you're probably all asleep by then, but uh, at the end of the sermon, I mentioned a phrase from Henry Nouwen. He says, whether you're the older son or the younger son, the point is, how do we conform to the father? Right? The point is the father. Now, the parable is delivered by Jesus on the tales of The Pharisees saying, why is Jesus hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus is eating with them. The Pharisees are not cool with it. They're indicting it. And then Jesus says, everybody gather around. Sit down. I want to tell you a story of my father. Side note. This is really interesting. Jesus addresses God as his father repeatedly. Now, when we think about God as father, we're kind of coming at this from like a metaphorical place. Jesus knows what it's like to not have an earthly biological father. And when you know what what it's like to not have this earthly biological father, something inside of you longs to be drawn back to who this is that you are connected to. Now, Jesus is, as we talked about last week, Jesus finds his source, his essence, his being, his substance as partly divine, partly connected to the creator of the universe. So when Jesus says, this is my father, he has no other choice. This is just a proclamation of truth. It is a part of his essence. And as we enter into Jesus' story, we are truly entering into his story, which is a reality. It's this, this physical connection that he has with the father that is due to his very nature, his created being. So Jesus sits down and he says, let me tell you a story about my father and what his character is. We know the parable. It goes, you know, the the prodigal son 
leaves, and the older son gets upset because his father or his, his younger brother squandered this inheritance, and his father throws him the party. And at the end of the day, it is the father who sees his son coming from a long way off, and he runs after his child to throw him a party. I want to look at this from two, two angles if we're looking at, if we're trying to understand the heart of the Father and how we relate our natural tendencies of our relationship to God as Father. Because at the end of the day, we are both the older son and the younger son. The younger son, when he asks for his inheritance, it is a proclamation of disdain or even hatred or a desire to be distant from his protector and his provider. There is something inside of each one of us that hits a point in time where we just want our distance. We want to be removed from the shelter of our protector and our provider. We all know as human beings what it means to need protection and need provision because we've all been a child, right? But we also know what it means to come of age and to say, you know what? I need to distance myself from that and I am going to push myself up against that and remove myself from this protector and this provider. God, our Father, is ultimately our protector and our provider. And like I've said, I feel like I've said this in every single sermon, and I'm probably going to continue to say it because it's so blatantly obvious. But when we walk out this door and we see greenery and we see the trees, we don't go toward, we don't go, our minds don't go to Oh, look at God is providing for me. God is providing air for me to breathe. God is providing oxygen to throw, flow through my veins to sustain my body. We no longer see these things as provision. We feel that they are, we are entitled to these things because, well, I don't know. That's just how the world works. Instead, We desire for a God to let us run free, to create the world how we want to create it, to go in the direction that we want to go, and to not be held back or encumbered with making the decisions that we ultimately want to make. And our loving and gracious Father says, here you go. Go. Do it. Go. With a tear in his eyes, can you imagine? I mean, parents in this room giving your child their inheritance to watch them walk out the door and squander it. And the Father allows you and me to make the decisions that we make. He allows us to look him in the eyes and say, let me do this my way, 
And he allows us to go. And we go. And then we find ourselves, or some of us, most of us, hopefully at some point we realize that our way is not as good as the provider uh, way, but some of us eventually make our way back to that father. Hold on. Let me recircle my thoughts. What am I ultimately trying to say here? All right. I'm feeling a need to stop here. This is ultimately the, the point. I'm just going to get right to it instead of going the roundabout way of trying to get to it. The story of Jesus, uh, I actually realized this in a conversation with Andy uh, this week, is I never, my eyes were never open to this. The older son in the story is ultimately the one that Jesus is addressing the Pharisees and saying, Hey, listen, you're the older son in this story. I've given you everything. And you're over here complaining about this father full of grace running toward the prodigal. And Jesus, in highlighting that, he is actually identifying with the Pharisees. He's saying, guess what? I'm you as well. That's what Andy pointed out to me, and I don't know why I've never had eyes to see this. Jesus is actually the older son, but Jesus is the older son who willingly gave up his birthright and didn't complain about the father giving it away, but he willingly gave it up. And Jesus is the older son that when the prodigal comes running home, is running alongside the father to greet him. Jesus is the one that takes the ring and puts it on his stinking finger. Jesus is the one that's carrying the robe and throws it around him. Jesus is the one that calls for the fattened calf because that's what the father wants. Jesus is the one throwing the party. Why? Because Jesus carries the heart of the father. And his desire is for us to share his invitation to us is to share in that story. That's the invitation as followers of Jesus is to be a people that is so formed by the radical and unexplainable, scandalous grace of God that goes beyond all comprehension in all measure. Details are not lost on parables like this. When Jesus said his father sees him from a long way off and goes running out toward him, he meant he saw him from a long way off and something welled up inside of him and he's sprinting down this road undignified to greet his son. 
lavishing him with all riches. It is grace beyond what you could comprehend. And we as people who say, I believe in God as Father, we are confessing a belief in something that subverts the oppressive, subverts the the lordship of our time and our place that holds us captive. Inserts a radical grace that runs to the prodigal with just ferocious pursuit and bears an invitation for us to enter into that story to be conformed, shaped, and transformed by it. That is who God, our Father, is and what He invites us into becoming and growing into as the body of Christ. Can we be a people who not just confess blindly, I believe as in I cognitively recognize this obscure idea of God being Father. Can we be a people who say, I am transformed, my life, my person, my perception of what it means to be a good father or mother or son or daughter, can that be transformed by this image of a God of radical, scandalous grace who pursues me and us with reckless abandon? And may my life and our life mimic that scandalousness. <laughs> I think it's time. I think it's time for the church, for us, to rewrite our stereotype. Not as the older brother, but as the little Christs who are the older brother running alongside the father to throw a party for the prodigal. That's the heart of the father. Let us err in that space. Let us be transformed and conformed by that heart and that heartbeat because that is the heart of the Father. That is the heart of the Father. We are going to be a people moving forward that, I mean, this is going to be our space. We're going to follow the lead and the likes of Alyssa Keller who are on the forefront of our community sowing life and justice and peace in our community and in our city and the many others in our community who are going out to be hands and feet of grace and mercy and compassion. And that is going to be a part of who we are as, as a community because that is what the Spirit of the Father calls us into. And that's a story that we have the privilege of entering into as a community here in Southeast Portland. Amen? Right? Guys, I love you. Thank you for your patience with me and just going along this crazy ride of me just getting all crazy and stuck and stuff. I just, I legitimately, I I love being in community with you. And I love uh, the fact that I can feel 
I can feel release and, and peace and calm in your presence, and I hope that you can feel the same in my presence and in the presence of our leaders here in this community, and that we together grow in maturity and life together and sharpen one another and grow. You sharpen me, and I'm, and I'm thankful for that. I'm so overwhelmed with gratitude for my relationship with you, and I love that I pretty much have a relationship with all of you, most of you. So let's continue that journey together. Uh, I love you. You're great. We're going to come to the Lord's table. Um, there's elements up here in the front and in the back. All are welcome, and I just want to encourage you, when you come to this space, reflect on the love of the Father and the love of the Father that pours out over you and just cherishes you. Relish in it. Be glad in it. Find celebration in it. There's a feast that's thrown for you because the heart of the Father loves you that much. Come to the table. You've been listening to the podcast of Theophilus Church. We hope you've been inspired and challenged by what you've heard. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com.